Welcome to Battle Rhythm, a podcast dedicated to security and defense issues from a Canadian and international perspective. I'm Steve Sabinan. I am the Patterson Chair in International Affairs at Carleton University, and I'm also the Director of the Canadian Defense Security Network. Battle Rhythm is a part of the Canadian Global Affairs Institute's podcast network. We have new episodes dropping every other Wednesday. Our podcast is produced at Carleton University, which is on unceded Algonquin territory, which is home to the Anishinaabe Nation. So this week on Battle Rhythm, we have Vanessa Kimball as our co-host, a professor at the University of Laval, and has been leading a variety of CDS initiatives, first on some of our security stuff, and now on our, particularly our climate security. So welcome back to Battle Rhythm, Vanessa. Thank you, Steve. How are you? I'm doing pretty well. I'm pretty jazzed. Remember the good old days where you go to a conference, you meet lots of people, you realize, wow, there's all kinds of ideas. You try to grab onto some and you get confused. Well, I, I went to the American Political Science Association meeting last week, which was in Montreal, which is Last I checked, not part of the United States, but we had a lot of people from the United States, as well as Canada and elsewhere in the world, talking poli-sci. And it was the first time I'd been there since, wow, 2019. It was my longest absent gap in my career, thanks to the pandemic. And it was mostly pretty normal. The nice thing about the Palais de Congrès and the hotels we were at is we have really large rooms. It makes you feel bad when you have a small audience, like the audience my first day was really small. But it also meant that you didn't feel very crowded. And uh, the restaurants, as always, in Montreal were excellent. I warned people away from the Mexican restaurants in Montreal because that's the one exception to the law that says that all food in Montreal is terrific. And, I agree. Uh, and lots of good CDS ending, lots of good hanging out with civ mill people. So uh, lots of really good opportunities to hear what people are doing. And so now the insider question is, did you end up uh, ahead or behind in those poker games, Steve? Oh, I had one of my best poker games of my careers in, in, in the APSA ISA poker game. I tripled my stack. The first half of the evening, I was not doing well, and then I came on, and boy, did I get a good run of cards and a good run of people deciding to give me their chips. So that so was nice. That's the other side thing in town when those conferences are going on, the Seidemann poker games. <laughs> yeah, well, it's, it's always been very good networking. That's how I developed a relationship with uh, Patrick James, who ended up being a, a lot of recommendation writer throughout my career, including this year as I'm applying for sabbaticals. You know, we keep on having to write, get letters written for us, even as, you know, the people who are older than us sort of age out of the discipline. That's not as much of a problem for you, but it is for me as, as uh, you know, uh, my advisor has retired and then taking on a new job, but he'll eventually retire again. Then I'll have to look for some other people to write these letters. Anyhow, it was a good week. Uh, I got to talk to uh, Steffi Von Lackey and J.C. Boucher and a lot of the other usual suspects in the CDSN community. So it was good to catch up and, and conspire for the next steps of what we're doing. So overall, it was great. Sorry that you couldn't make it, but I hope that you'll make it back to Montreal when it's less rainy and more slushy in the March International Studies Association meeting, which it's a coincidence that both of those associations have meetings in Montreal the same academic year. Yes. In fact, the acceptances for ISA just went out. So I'm I'm in the midst of trying to decide how much traveling I can do in the spring term. But as we know, conferences are, are a great opportunity to, I particularly like to see, you know, what is the, the new interesting research coming out by junior scholars. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I like to, I, I mix 
probably a little more going to see junior scholars than senior scholars these days. I don't know if that's good or bad, but I think no, that that's good. probably about the, I think that's, you know, what interests me most right now at this point in my career, having, you know, just become full professor is kind of doing that look back to see who is interesting that's coming out junior and, you know, mm-hmm. where's the field going in the next five to 10 years, you know. Well, there was a big panel at uh, apps that I didn't go to, but it was widely live tweeted because John Mearsheimer embarrassed himself with his defense of or his explanation for why the Russians were perfectly, you know, provoked into invading Ukraine thanks to NATO. So that that gives us a bridge to our, our topic, our first topic, which is. The state of play between Russia and Ukraine. Uh, Since we last talked, the Ukrainians have engaged in a series of offensive, first uh, in one direction and then in another, have been very, very successful, particularly in that second offensive. The stories today are that the Russians are now thinking about mobilizing convicts because they're always so good on the battlefield. So you've been watching this. What is your take on on where things are, both on the battlefield and the larger international politics surrounding the, the war? Mm-hmm. Well, I think right now, you know, what we're seeing here is kind of the a forceful counter defense that Ukraine has been ramping up to or had been ramping up to throughout the summer. And so I think as we kind of turn into going, you know, we've passed the six month portion of the conflict. And so kind of we're going into the third quarter. And so Ukraine in this, you know, these next eight weeks, it's going to be essential that they they push back Russia. What we have seen is that once they appear to take territory, they, it doesn't flip back over to Russia. And so it appears once they've regained their keeping, which is a good sign. We're also, you know, um, there are signs coming out of Moscow, for example, you know, Putin said that he's not sending any more new units uh, to the conflict right now because he has actually deployed a lot of Moscow's air defense assets forward. The capital of Russia is surprisingly uh, underprotected right now, one might say. And so, you know, I think this is evidencing a little bit that Putin is maybe getting into some some territory where he's gambling some, but he still feels pretty pretty confident that he can make those risky decisions. So, you know, I'm not sure that this is actually a withdrawal, but, you know, it does appear to be the tide is turning on Ukraine and for Ukraine, and they are certainly benefiting from their own geography right now in terms of pushing Russia back. Well, they've definitely used geography to their advantage because they've done a great job of hitting bridges and ferries so that way the Russians can't reinforce some of the territory they've taken and so that they can't escape the territory as the as the Ukrainian offensive heads in their direction. I do think that this offensive, just like the defense of uh, Kiev and other locations of the outside of the war, have shown that the Ukrainians are well-led. Maybe American and Canadian generals can't think all that strategically, but certainly Ukrainians can because they've made the right choices pretty much every step along the way. Can't think of any major misstep that they've made. And they've been able to understand their adversary and use their adversaries' tendencies and weaknesses against them. So when the Russians reinforce the Kherson region, then they the Ukrainians deployed that second punch, which has been so very successful. Of course, it's also revealing, as previous efforts to take back territory, it's revealing the war crimes the Russians have engaged in. That has a larger strategic implication, which is it's really hard for Zelensky and the Ukrainians to agree to let some territory stay within Russian hands, because as long as those territories are in Russian hands, there are Ukrainians within Russian hands. And if the Russians are engaged in war crimes against Ukrainians, then those territories can't be allowed to stay within Russian hands. It's that, just that simple. So mm-hmm. Putin's policies are ma- is making bargaining very, very difficult. There, there can't be some sort of 
pie slicing to allow Putin to save some face by keeping a hunk of, of the Donbass region for the simple reality that we can't trust him to treat the people of the Donbass region decently. Well, and I think that this is also, uh, Putin is a bit shooting himself in the foot here because the evidence of war crimes is only going to increase the willingness of Western states to continue watching the situation to become involved. I mean, if once there's an investigation and if things are, you know, actually confirmed, then again, it's going to open some other avenues as well. Not for what I would say, mostly reputational avenues against Russia and be able to open some other types of discourse. But I mean, it certainly does. It helps the Ukraine, especially on the other hand, when the Ukrainians are literally giving the Russian sh- soldiers, you know, business cards that are <laughs> saying you're going to get to call mom, you know, you you have, you know, you are a prisoner of war, you will be well treated. And I think this is, you know, it's a very stark comparison. And I think that that, you know, that obviously plays well to the the, do- the domestic and international audiences in terms of legitimizing Ukraine's defense. That certainly makes it easier to sell arms, transfer arms to Ukraine if you think that they're going to be used well, rather than that they're going to get captured by the adversary. One of the big stories of the past couple days is that the Ukrainian army was able to capture an intact T-90 tank, which is the most advanced weapon system that the Russians have deployed in the battlefield. And so the question becomes, who gets to keep it? Is it something that the Americans get to have in exchange for the support they've given so that the Americans can take a look at it to figure out the, what the weaknesses and strengths of the weapon system are. Do the British get to keep it? You know, it's, it's going to be one of those things where there's going to be a lot of intelligence sharing when they take that thing apart. Anyway, uh, but this raises uh, uh, the next question, which we wanted to grapple with today, which is Germany uh, has been making all kinds of noises about doing stuff. But, you know, are they going to get to 2 percent, even though we hate the 2 percent metric? Are they going to spend their money effectively? Are they going to spend more money consistently over the long term? That hit the news this week. So I'm curious as to your take on that. Of course, Germany, since this conflict or since the, you know, Russia has invaded Ukraine, has been promising more to defense. I think that, you know, you can create spending targets. But on the other hand, there's a bit, there's a little bit, it requires some forethought into what are you actually going to buy with those things? You know, you can spend money on almost anything. The stories of golden toilet seats at the Pentagon and stuff like that. So, I mean, I think one aspect is if Germany spends this 2%, but in a vacuum without looking at what uh, NATO partners bring, what it should contribute to the alliance, you know, what future needs are, then it's not really going to be effective. And I think on the other hand, you know, the 2% threshold really doesn't say that that spending is on NATO. This is just, you know, it's like a check in a column. It's a signal of credibility. And we talk about not reaching 2% as if it's a type of like credibility or compliance gap. But these are not concepts that are meaningful in and of themselves. Well, and some people think that it's actually paying money to NATO, which is not. It's paying money on your own defense capabilities. And what seems to be going on here in this latest story that involves the defense minister, Christine Lembrick, is she may be engaged in her own politicking within her own party, within the Christian Democrats in Germany, because her chancellor, Schultz, said last February, very famously, that we need to change what we're doing. We're going to spend a lot more money. But I, I was in Germany both in I want to say April and and June and Berlin. And there's a lot of skepticism about this because the Germans had said, basically, we're going to focus on the budget for the next five years, but we can't commit the next government to any new spending patterns. But the problem with that is that 
all defense planning requires more than five years. And if you, if you can't plan out more than five years, then you can't actually start buying systems that take long times to you know, develop. And we Canadians understand how long these things can last. And so if you can't make the decisions that bind leaders in year six, then you can't make most decisions. So it's not entirely clear what they're committing themselves to, but it suggests they might revert back to traditional spending patterns after year five. I think Christine Lambert uh, is, is trying to push back against this and trying to commit her colleagues to a more consistent spend in the long term of getting enough to actually have a capable military up, up to this point in time because of various things, including past mistakes by previous defense ministers. They can't <laughs> sail, they can't fly, they can't drive. They don't have the spare parts to keep their equipment going. So that's, that's the, start, the starting point for this. I think one of the challenges is that Germany faces a bit of a, you know, a domestic population that has some hesitancy about overspending on the military because of its history. There is also a sense of, you know, the trade-offs in spending and how, particularly military spending, and how that's going to affect other budget lines, particularly when it comes to the EU. And Canada does not have to think about funding a European Union. Canada pays very little otherwise for its defense when it does its bilateral deal with the United States and NORAD. And so simply when we talk 2% for Canada, there's not much public like for it because, you know, the Canadian public generally is not, would would probably rather a dollar went towards foreign policy than towards defense, let's say. And so this is where, you know, these types of the splits between the defense budget and foreign policy budget matter. And the fact that we're we're over-focused on this kind of defense spending metric as if it's the, the, the be-all end-all of what is, you know, a NATO commitment, what is competence at NATO. I think it really, you know, speaks to the fact that we really kind of um, evacuate everything that is related to foreign affairs that is contributed to NATO, um, which is quite surprising. Yeah, I, I, I think that they're in a world of hurt right now, given the economic pressures, the decline, declining population, the other commitments. And the impending pressure that they're going to have uh, for energy security. Yeah. I mean, this is one of the other things that's, you know, kind of wrapped up in that defense, in, in the 2% defense commitment is also that they've also had their economic minister make a commitment in the last year that they're going to, they're, you know, trying to have zero dependence on Russia for energy and how are you going to make all of these things happen? <laughs> yeah, I don't I don't know what's going to happen there. It's a really tough choices. And the domestic politics would suggest they're not going to make them. <laughs> exactly. And uh, that leads me to quote my favorite Canadian lyric by, the, by Rush. Even if you choose not to decide, you still have made a choice. And so I think that by not deciding, the Germans will have made a choice. We'll see if they ch- relax some of the stuff that is less costly at home, but it still runs into pacifism, runs into domestic political dynamics, which is just letting other countries that have German-made weapon systems, can they can can they transfer them to, to Ukraine? There's lots of other dynamics going on here that the Germans have a hand in, which are directly implicating the German defense budget. Can they make those decisions more easily, or are they going to be stuck in the bureaucracy? But one country that does not have a problem with bureaucracy is North Korea, that their leadership makes a decision, their bureaucrats tend to obey, at least as far as I can tell. And so North Korea has made the news because there's a new law passed, I guess, I guess, Kim Jong-un had no problem getting it through his legislature, uh, which basically said that North Korea has a right to engage in preemptive nuclear strikes if threatened. And I'm curious as to, as to your take on this, Anessa, given does this, does this change anything? 
Well, I mean, I have kind of two takes about this. You know, one is North Korea has a bit of a role, which is always being a thorn in everybody's side. You know, it kind of has to come back around and have that role every once in a while. It may seem to be related sometimes to trying to take up a little um, some space on the political agenda when there are other things going on internationally. And so I think there's a bit of that going on. But also when you you create a policy or a statement of preemptive nuclear strikes, you're basically I mean, this is, you know, kind of like it's a shelling conjecture, right? You're placing the decision as to whether or not you make a response into the other party's hands, right? And so North Korea is essentially coming out with a a tacit kind of threat saying, you know, we're willing to strike first if we are pretty sure that you're going to strike us. This is a different version of the Bush doctrine in some senses. It was not, you know, it was preemptively intervening. It was not nuclear strikes, but it's not something that we would say is new to international relations. It's the type of strategy that countries, it's a type of strategy to try to coerce other countries into, you know, treating North Korea with more respect. I think that this underlines a lot of the actions that Korea has taken. And it appears to, in my mind, it appears to me mostly related with, you know, the willingness to reopen you know, tests that they had abandoned, more or less. I think that we're never going to get a King Jong-un to give up what he sees as his, you know, sovereign, as the sovereign independent right of North Korea to test weapons. It's it's a hard convince there. And these policies that, he, you know, and a preemptive nuclear strike is making it even, even more difficult to make those talks happen and denuclearization to occur. Yeah, for me, I, I've never thought that denuclearization is in the cards in any real way. It doesn't make sense from the North Korean standpoint to do so, given the American threats about regime change from time to time. So... Part of this law is to say that if you threaten a change in our regime, not just conquering us, then then that could be grounds for us to launch nuclear strikes. So I think this is pushing back against the Bush doctrine about re- regime change in authoritarian states. Biden hasn't been talking about that much, but it's still something the North Koreans care about. But the thing that, that worries me most is it seems to be a reaction to the South Korean development, what they call the kill chain strategy, which is the South Koreans want to have the ability to take out the North Korean nuclear program in a first strike. That is, if things get hot and they're worried about the North Koreans attacking first, then South Koreans will attack first and try to diminish or even eradicate North Korea's ability to strike first, strike with nuclear weapons. And the problem is if the both sides feel as if they have to attack first, it dramatically reduces the time and uh, reduces the ability in a crisis to, to play things out and reduces the ability for the various sides to be patient and, and, and work through the crisis. Any, any twitch might lead to one side attacking first for fear that they lose the ability to attack second. So when I see this you know, preemption discussion, well, preemption is always an issue in these things, but it does seem that the North Koreans are reacting to the South Korean developments. But I can't say the South Koreans are being unwise for thinking about ways to take out the North Korean weapon systems, given that they are the ones who are directly implicated by them. So this is a classic example in the international relations field of the security dilemma. Any individual attempt to improve your security threatens others. They respond in kind, and that leaves everybody else worse off. And going back to Shelley, going back to the original discussion of nuclear dynamics, one of the big changes in the headspaces of the Americans and then the Soviets in the late 1960s was the creation of mutual assured destruction was better than the alternatives. That it was better to have each side having a second strike capability that was intact and would withstand a first strike so that way neither side faced a temptation to attack first. And that's one reason why we're still here. And I worry a lot about how North Korea faces the situation right now because 
again, they start throwing nukes, nukes around. It's not just going to be bad for the neighborhood. And they have the ability to hit North America, although I don't think their first strike would be in our direction. Their first strike would be in South Korean direction to eliminate the ability for the South Koreans to take out any more North Korean weapon systems. But uh, it's a, you know, that's a process that would very easily get out of control. Yeah. yeah, it is a bit with purpose here that this preemptive policy puts that edge on misperception, right? Puts that edge on trying to make sure that signals are communicated clearly, kind of ups that accidental risk of conflict. And I think that, you know, speaking of the region, I don't know if you saw, but over the weekend, the United States actually announced a change in policy towards Taiwan, too, where it indicated that um, it might be willing to use troops to defend Taiwan. And so let's I have to... about, Let's be clear about that. That was an, not, not an announcement of policy. That was an announcement of, of Joe Biden saying things he said before and that will be walked back by whoever does the official walking back function. Exactly. But as we can, again, like, so we're seeing here, you know, the, the executive goes a little further and then, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's up to the bureaucracy and the other, the the people behind the executive to kind of pull them back from what would be a a policy that's, you know, a little bit out of line with, you know, what the historical policy would be. You know, I think that what we're seeing, I mean, this, this is an attention to Asia that is, definitely, you know, needed by the United States. And um, with all of the focus that has been turned towards Europe and towards Russia, I think it's it's clear that North Korea is using this opportunity to make some waves and, you know, try to continue to be that thorn in the side. They definitely want to always be relevant, which is wildly annoying. <laughs> uh, and that's, they like to be annoying. So this is not going to go away anytime too soon. But we are, I think we reached the end of our conversation today. Anessa, it's always a pleasure to talk to you. I wish you luck as your semester goes forward with all the grading and, and, and stuff that ensues. Good luck with the fall as our leaves are starting to change and it's starting to get cold. The bright side of my, my side is that when this happens, I get to have hot chocolate with Bailey's in it, which I plan to have this afternoon. I'll be back in that those fall and winter rituals. So. Absolutely. This weekend of taking off to chalet to enjoy the foliage and try to get that relaxed before we head towards the midterms. There's all kinds of midterms this this year, isn't there? All right. Well, thanks again for your time and your expertise. It's always a pleasure, Anessa. Thank you. Goodbye. Today in Battle Rhythm, we have Aaron Edwards, who is the manager of the MINDS program, that is the Mobilized Insights in Defense and Security. I think I'm getting that right because Aaron's background is the MINDS banner, but his head is right in the way of the uh, middle of it. So anyway, welcome to Battle of the Barons. Thanks, Steve. Thanks for having me. Uh, it's our pleasure. Mines, to be honest, has been funding the CDSN in a variety of ways ever since we got started. Uh, we are one of the nine collaborative networks that are receiving money. We started that this past year with a lot of the kinks on our side of the thing. And before that, we've had a lot of uh, our events funded by the targeted engagement grants. So we have had a very good relationship with Mines. So I will probably not be throwing you as many fastballs as some other folks in, in the business might. So how'd you get into this business? in the first place. Yeah, so thanks again for having me. I'm really excited to be on the podcast. I joined Minds three years ago, so in 2019. So um, I started actually at Nipsia. So Steve was a professor of mine and I was looking at conflict management and capacity building by by the CAF and, and civil military.
military relations and stuff like that. So I've, I've always had an interest in defense and, and history. So Nipsey was a great place to be for that. And then I, uh, through the co-op option there, got employed at public safety uh, for a stint there and then at D&D's infrastructure and environment branch. Um, so I spent a couple of years there looking at Indigenous affairs and some infrastructure mm-hmm. and environment policy. And then I came over to the Directorate of Strategic Coordination and Outreach within the policy group at D&D. So we have the policy officer recruitment program, the port program, as well as the mobilizing insights and defense and security program. So I spent two years as a policy officer working on mines, kind of in the trenches of grant evaluations and webinar organizing and doing the stakeholder outreach and, and client relations internally. And then a year ago, I was offered the opportunity to manage the program. And, and so I've been doing that ever since. I mean, I, I really enjoy it. It's a, it's a great team and, and there's a lot of variety in the files and it's fun and, and feels quite meaningful at times to be connecting people to useful and insights for policymakers and decision makers as well. So it's really a, a great broad file for me. Excellent. It's, it's uh, when I've interacted with people in your office, it's really interesting in sort of the diverse things you end up handling. And of course, we at Nipsia have uh, desires to hang out with you because the PORP program is one of the principal ways in which people can get into, into government. So can you tell us a little bit about PORP as, as one of the yeah. more fun sounding acronyms in the business? Yeah, for sure. So uh, the Policy Officer Recruitment Program is, is run out of ADM Paul, as I said. The competitions typically launch in December every year. And the idea is it's a recruitment program to bring in new policy officers to the policy group. So it attracts over, I would say on average, over five or 600 applicants Mm -hmm. uh, every year. And that's people from a really diverse range of backgrounds, not just your kind of typical poli-sci and history students. It's it's legal folks, it's it's development, Mm -hmm. it's business as well. And the whole idea is to to really bring in some of the best and brightest into the the defense space and gives them a three-year progression from sort of an entry-level job up to a um, mid-level officer job. They rotate through different positions and, and receive language training and get a lot of really great opportunities to, to see the CAF in action and, at different times. And yeah, and to see a, a fair breadth of the policy work that goes on at D&D. So it's, it's really a great program. And it's brutally competitive. Is that fair to say? It's highly competitive. I would say so. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. As I say, we've, they receive hundreds of applications and then the number of actual folks that we hire each, each year varies, but it can be as, as few as five or as many as 12, but, uh, but yeah, mm-hmm. it's, it's very competitive. It's not the only way to, to get in, but it's, uh, it certainly is a, a bit of a fast track and there's, there's some really unique opportunities to the program uh, that it offers. So, and I, I have bumped into some uh, students who used to be mine either at McGill or at now at Carleton who've gone through it. They've done interesting things like were the Talad, the local advisor to the general who was running the Iraq mission from Kuwait. That's one that always sticks out in my head as one of the more interesting gigs. And so it, it doesn't take long if you get into this program to actually be doing pretty substantive stuff. It's not like you're on a photocopy of the first 10 years of your career. Yeah, I mean, the, and the policy group in uh, in general has a rotation system as well. So uh, there's lots of opportunity sort of once you join, whether through the PORP or through other means to to move around. Uh, and and it's great. I mean, as you say, there's, there's policy advisor positions in a number of different organizations within D&D deployed operations in, in Brussels and in, in New York. And it's uh, a great system for kind of managing your career, but also managing your, your work-life balance. So uh, you can really move into those sort of fast-paced, high-intensity jobs, or you can go mm-hmm. and do a bit more strategic kind of quieter work or program management like I do. Um, yeah, it's, it's got a lot of variety. So Excellent. And so what is Minds doing besides recruiting people to be in D&D? So Minds is, is D&D's policy outreach program, um, which means that we are here essentially trying to 
facilitate knowledge transfer conversation and, and engagement and collaboration between internal practitioners in D&D and, and the CAF, and also I would say other government departments as well, with external experts. And, and experts can be think tanks or academics or independent researchers or NGOs, essentially the, the civil society that's looking at defense and security issues. So MINES came out of SSC. It's an expansion and a, and a bit of a redesign of the old defense engagement program. And, and ultimately ultimately was looking to increase DND's investment in defense and security community, uh, but also in the, in the engagement with that community. So the goal is really to improve evidence-based policymaking and include diverse perspectives in those policy development processes. The program itself is designed though around three objectives. The first of which is, is relevant and timely external advice to D&D uh, CAF. So we do that through funding research, through funding interaction and engagement, as I said, and really a lot of times kind of responding for requests for assistance or requests for engagement mm -hmm. from our internal clients. The other objectives are fostering the next generation. So we do that through a number of ways, I would say, often sort of through the work that we fund, but through our collaborative network. So CDSN and our other networks would be hiring research assistants, holding summer symposia or summer institutes, that kind mm -hmm. of thing. And then we also offer uh, scholarships through SHRC and, and we do grant funding as well for, for masters and, and undergrad students. So the last objective though is raising awareness of defense and security issues among Canadian public. So mm -hmm. again, just trying to raise the profile of different issues. So that's through our networks, through the projects we fund and, and the conferences and the webinars and the podcasts mm -hmm. and the newsletters and everything that kind of comes out that's that's really sort of adding fuel to the fire that is the discourse on defense and security mm -hmm. issues. Yeah, those are the objectives of the program. And then really quite central to the program is what we call our, our defense policy challenges. So if you go on our website, you'll see them there. And I think it's actually a fairly unique document and, and I've heard as much from our from our colleagues in, in the US and, and other Five Eyes and et cetera. But essentially the policy challenges are, are statements of the problem. Uh, so if you go mm -hmm. on, you'll see that they're organized under different themes and th they really are the big questions and issues facing defense. And it's us signaling to the expert community, you know, these, these are the things keeping us up at night. These are where we really hope to leverage mm -hmm. external expertise and, and to, to leverage the strength and, and the diversity of, of the academic and expert community in Canada and overseas to help tackle defense challenges. Mm -hmm. That's kind of what we do as a program. And you mentioned that this came out of the SSE, that the, the last defense review, Strong Security Engaged, the academics and I guess others had complained during the review process that we had been missing something from the previous efforts that long ago there was a security defense forum and, and that got killed. One of the complaints about that program was that the money that was being given was given to all kinds of academic enterprises, not just stuff that that was clearly what defense needed information about. And so what makes minds distinct is those policy challenges. You know, we don't have to guess, okay, what are the kinds of grant applications that get funded? And you guys don't have to guess, well, if we give these people money, what the hell are they going to study? So it provides us with a clear idea of, okay, these are the challenges that the government is really curious about. And they're broad enough that it's not like, hey, we want this policy. This is the policy solution we want. Here, you do the research to justify what we're trying to do. It's like, hey, there's this climate change thing. How do we grapple with this? What are the implications of climate change for Canadian security? What is it? 
what is the what implications of climate change for the Canadian Armed Forces? And so that helped shape our application. So that way, when we existed before this grant application, and when we were looking at it, we were like, well, there are these things they, they care about. We could fit them into sort of two categories of global emergencies, pandemics, climate security, climate change, and supply chain vulnerabilities, and then domestic resilience or Canadian resilience. And so that was about trying to think about how does Canada, how can industries respond on the ground to the implications of this stuff? For instance, floods, fires, all that kind of stuff. And that was the way we did it. And if you, and if folks were to look at the other eight networks that were funded, it's very clear that they're responding to the policy challenges. They're not just, hey, we're a group where people get together, give us money so we can do whatever what we want. It's directing us towards the policy challenges, but they're broad enough that we don't have to, you know, it's, it's not like you're telling us that you want a stealth plane that interoperates with the Americans and then we go, oh, well, I guess we got to buy that for 35. It's, it's a much broader kind of set of requirements uh, that allow us to do what we want to do. And the money, for instance, we used, and for us at the CDSN, we did actually pay for, use the money to pay for the Summer Institute that we're still doing the accounting for, which is why we've had our first fiscal financial report because the, the reimbursement requests are still coming in. But that's the joy of the process is that there's all the kind of reporting that that's different from the previous iterations, though, that we can be held accountable for the money that we're spending. But anyway, it paid for our Summer Institute, and our Summer Institute was aimed at fostering that next generation uh, from, uh, from across the defense and security community. So we had people from the policy world, we had people from the academic world, we had people from the private sector. So it was very much in sync with what you guys are trying to do. One of the things I want to highlight, you talk about grants for undergraduate and graduate research. We're familiar with the Young Minds program because we helped a couple of our undergraduate excellence scholars last year apply for, get it, and then execute the projects. And I guess, is it still called Young Minds? And the difference is that the minds now can be slightly less young? Yeah, exactly. So I, I kind of glossed it over earlier. So in the past, our Young Minds grant or our Young Minds initiative, which is a grant of up to $10,000 for a student project, essentially, were available only to undergrad students. And so they, they uh, require a, a sponsor, so essentially a supervising professor to support them. And we've been thinking about our the applicant pool there and, and the accessibility to to master's students and, and essentially recognize that we could really provide a great opportunity for the master's level by broadening the eligibility criteria. So, mm -hmm. so Young Minds grants are now available to master's students as well as undergrad students, which is which is really a simple change, but but really could have a great impact. So as you said, CDSN's had a couple uh, really great Young Minds projects delivered recently, and that role of the sponsor sponsor is really important, but it also puts a lot of onus, I think, on, on academics and on that relationship between students and their professors. So I think broadening the, the eligibility is going to hit a maybe more appropriate audience, but it's also going to really enable master's level students to, to, to seize on their, their research or, or take ideas like conferences or roundtables and workshops mm -hmm. and that kind of thing and, and seek defense funding, but also in conducting those projects, really connect with defense. And, and, you know, if you want to have a CAF leadership there or a policy decision maker there or a real subject matter expert, you know, doing so through a MINDS grant really uh, gives you that conduit to the department. So we're really excited about the change. And if folks are curious about those Young Minds programs, the first podcast in September, the two Young Minds fellows present what they did and what they learned from the project. So if people are curious about the Young Minds program, we, we highlighted those two students' efforts. 
just a, a few weeks ago. And again, if you're looking for a thesis question or for a, a research project idea, go to the policy challenges and, and apply to Among Young Minds grant. It's putting two and two together, we hope. <laughs> when these students indicated interest in that, we looked at the policy challenges and they picked the ones that were most interested in. One was interested in hybrid warfare and the other was interested in the rise of China. That's great. And I was going to say, like picking up on what you were saying earlier, like relevance is really the watchword, I think, for the program. And, and that does come out of, of the Strategic Defense Forum and from the Defense Engagement Program. But relevance is, is really a compact like between the department and the community that we're working with outside. You know, we have to communicate what relevance looks like and without being too prescriptive, but being transparent and being a collaborative partner as we tackle these challenges, I think, is, is part of the department's responsibility. Again, otherwise, we have the breakdown in the relationship that we had seen in some cases in the past. So I think the way that we've approached it with the policy challenges and with some of the, you know, the application debriefs and different things like that, that the program's doing to help build awareness, build mm -hmm. capacity in the expert community as well, is all all for the better, kind of floats floats our collective tide. So are we going to see a big revision in the policy challenges for this next round, or is it mostly the same challenges? So this year, because of the defense policy update, we are not going to do a refresh of the policy challenges. So to go back, policy challenges are refreshed every year. Uh, we did a pretty substantial one in 2021, um, restructuring them, really trying to rationalize them and, and combine them in a, an effective way. Again, with the defense policy update coming out, we don't want to lean ahead of that policy direction, but we also felt fairly confident that the suite of challenges we have was sufficient to cover most of what has gone on whether it's Ukraine or an energy policy or, or et cetera. And frankly, I mean, the policy challenges are there to, for guidance. They're there to kind of set the arcs. But we know to some extent, as much as the academics, are, you know, we're all watching this space, you know, just because I don't say Ukraine in my policy challenges doesn't mean I'm going to ignore all applications on it. However, I should say as well, the other, the other change that's coming and assuming we launched our competition on time, it should be live by the time this airs. But the other thing we're adding is a rapid response challenge. So this is a small innovation in our funding portfolio, but the idea is that we're going to put together sort of a two to three questions on, on the most pressing challenge or mm -hmm. some of the most pressing challenges facing the department. So the idea, we'll refresh those every one to two tag rounds. The coming ones are going to be no surprise looking at Ukraine and, and mm -hmm. the implications there. But again, the idea is just to kind of highlight what we think is, is kind of an emerging, emerging challenge. And it just makes us a little bit more agile and a little bit more responsive to kind of emerging issues and changes uh, without having to do the sort of full policy suite refresh. So that's uh, another another change coming to the program, essentially. Excellent. And you you've raised an issue that I, I've been wanting to talk about and I've been asking people around town. And I've got to say that the current defense policy review or update, the DPU, has been the most subsurface of policy reviews of late. So what can you tell us about where things are at with the defense policy update and what are we to see updated? Yeah, so work is now underway and, and it's really layering a new layer of thinking on top of of SSC, which benefited from, from nationwide consultations. So we're also going to be making use in that process of, of the insights gained through more recent discussions that we've had with Canadians on written chapters, so on NORAD modernization and continental defense, which is actually some consultations that, that were enabled by mines or supported by mines. So the defense policy update is going to build on the results of these engagements and, 
it's going to align with the needs and express views of those different sectoral stakeholders. So it's not just experts and academics, obviously. The MINDS program is working with the team responsible for the defense policy update. So we're going to support those engagements with academic and expert community. We do expect that the MINDS networks will play some role. Obviously, we have established relationships with them, but, but that's far from an exhaustive list. The scope of that engagement is being finalized now, and mm -hmm. we do hope to be able to share some more information on that component of the process in the coming weeks. Yeah, that's all I can pretty much say. <laughs> Very fair. Um, I can't get you to tell me what they're going to be spending new money on, what programs to cancel. So your job is to manage the relationships between the Department of National Defense, the military, and the folks outside, the experts yep. of all kinds. And so I guess the question is, what are the hardest parts about this job? And what are the parts of the job that the things that you experienced that provide you with the, the most fun, joy, insight? Yeah, it's a good question. I think part of it is, is certainly really minds, I think, operates as a node between those two communities, and we're far from the only sort of conduit. And obviously, external experts have their own relationships and their own contacts internally. So the way I see minds is really as an enabler for internal practitioners. So often we'll receive requests or, or curiosities or ideas from our internal clients. So that could be a policy shop, it could be a director general or senior leadership who are looking to tackle an issue or explore a topic or connect with a particular expert or, or set of expertise. And so Minds has a number of different pillars that we use to triage these requests. So we have our expert briefing series, which is essentially a webinar series. So we can pay individual folks to come in and, and deliver a briefing or a short paper and participate in roundtables. And that's really about fostering conversation and providing an interaction opportunity. We have our targeted engagement grants, as I said. So those are funding specific projects and research projects and conferences and workshops and roundtables. Again, targeted engagement grants, I think, are really about fostering activity and ensure and helping to contribute to the sort of critical mass that is in the community of different work going on. And it's really about adding to the, to the body of knowledge that we have on these topics. And then we have our collaborative networks as well, as we've talked about. So they're they're funded for three years and they do their own independent research as you were talking about earlier but they also are intended to establish sort of a longer term relationship and collaboration and partnership with defense so we do have more responsive short turnaround requests for assistance from from them so it could be for a shorter briefing note or a briefing paper you know a sort of an environment scan of recent activity or topics that have been covered by them or office calls and roundtables and all that kind of stuff i think part of it is sort of augmenting the research and deep thinking capacity of government decision-making. Again, there is a knowledge transfer in a conversation. That's very much from the internal perspective. From the outside perspective, part of it's about access, access to practitioners and to their thinking and to you know their perspective. And obviously the funding is, is great. It, it pays the bills and it, and it provides the means, but it's also, I think about impact, you know, like whether it's delivering an expert briefing series or finalizing your report or having people attend, you know, D&D CAF members or, or uh, whomever attend your conference. Minds is a way, and, and that kind of interaction is a way to really impact uh, the thinking and the policy making and policy decisions that are going on in D and D. In terms of challenges, I think there's a number of things. You know, and one of the criticisms that has been lodged, I think, against past iterations of the program, and, and could probably be be lodged against current instances of this program, are the challenge of uptake. Like, it's how do we know they're listening? How do we know that that impact is happening? And part of that is, I think, part of culture change. It's part of transparency and being communicative mm -hmm. and not being risk averse to a degree or, or accepting some risk in what we're doing. Like ultimately, a lot of the conversation needs to be that kind of give and take. I'm going to 
try and be as, as transparent as I can within my equities and, and, you know, obviously information security and all that plays its part. But it is, I think, fostering a culture change, whether it's in policymakers who, you know, may, may think they have all the answers, you know, or intelligence folks who think that classified information is, is the be all end all. They don't need to go elsewhere. It's a culture change as well in terms of organizational process. You know, we're, we're used to responding to highly urgent, you know, fast things. I just want to get it off my desk and up into approval change. But thinking about the value and, and part of what we do is really trying to impress upon people the value of including diverse voices from outside of, of defense, you know, challenging our assumptions, checking our biases, not just doing what we did last time with new dates and, and you know, putting the news in the briefing note or whatever. Again, that's a lot of the, I think the culture change that program is fostering. And I'm obviously throwing out some, I don't know, archetypes or, or, or stereotypes, I guess is maybe a better term, but whether it's deliberate or unintentional, you do, we do encounter those challenges of making sure that, you know, when opportunities arise to really infuse greater diversity of, of views, whether that's research or advice, to make sure that it's, it's taken up both at the organizational level, but very much at the individual level too. So that just in time information mm -hmm. is there when the decision's being made or the policy is being developed, but also so that just in case information is there so that they have this kind of research that's being taken up and the folks that are working on files have access to and, and are read into the different perspectives and all the different evidence and, and all the yeah, the complexities, I guess, facing their specific files. So, Well, I, I, it's nice that this has come out at this time because one of the things that's been going on on our side of a different kind of culture change has been that I think this generation of academics is much more concerned about policy relevance, that we can't just be thinking theoretically that we need to be having policy implications. And it's obvious that, you know, I, I'm at a policy school, so I'm going to be more likely to say that than other folks. But I do think that, you know, there's an organization in the United States that's a part of the CDSN called Bridging the Gap, and that's representative of a larger enterprise that, that a lot of folks are interested in doing. It is actually speaking to the folks in government, both to learn from them, but also to communicate what we think of as our best ideas. So... I congratulate you on facilitating the military industrial academic complex. Some folks look at our relationship with fear and concern that we're too close, but I think we've, we've proven over the past several years that we say things that folks often don't want to hear. And the nice thing about the Minds program is it's never telling us what the product should look like. It's telling us what the questions that they're interested in hearing about. And so we've never been told do this or do that. And we've often provided recommendations that are inconvenient politically. And so the, the real trick on our side of the table is to try to figure out all the policy solutions we like. How do we make them politically appealing so that they actually happen as opposed to, hey, this program would have really you know, big costs in the short run, but would really benefit the politicians 30 years from now. That's kind of hard to advocate and get done. But the program itself has been great for the CDSN. It's been great for, for Carlton. The CDSN is actually built on sort of the previous programs because a lot of the researchers that and co-directors in our network were supported as graduate students by the predecessor to MINES. And so I'm hoping that the MINES program today does the same kind of thing of, of helping that next generation of scholars, you know, in 20 or 30 years, they'll be out there saying really obnoxious things and whatever the thing is after Twitter. So I want to thank you for sharing your time with us, Aaron. It's great to see one of our former students, one of my first students at NMC, actually. Being an early victim. An early victim, yeah. Well, you survived the process and you managed to get into government, into this cool spot where you get to see, you know, and engage with all of us and all the people inside and be at the nexus. I always think that being at the nexus is the most interesting place to be because that you get to see everything go back and forth. The fact that you're, you know, not doing the policy update, but you're next to it. So you're involved and engaged in it is a really cool spot to be because you'll probably not get burned by everybody being upset about it, but you'll learn about it, about it as it goes along and we'll have. Yeah, I just have to remove my background, right? Yeah. 
Yeah. Well, you'd be able to talk yeah. about it with your kids, but maybe not with us. Uh. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Exactly. No, I mean it's it's true. I find like the program has has a really wide subject matter breadth as well. Like you know, mm -hmm. last year or, or earlier this year, we were really engaged on a culture change rapid response contract, and you know, the the next day it's looking deeply at Ukraine. The next day it's looking deeply at quantum, which is coming up. Like yeah, it's it's a great breadth, and and the program is a lot of does a lot of the work in house. So from a kind of practitioner perspective, I, I really get to do a lot of diverse work from communications and data analytics and programming and event planning and outreach like this. It's, it's a sweet spot for sure. Excellent. Well, we appreciate you taking the time to talk to us and we look forward to looking at all our various applications in the years ahead with those kind eyes. <laughs> <laughs> looking forward to it, Steve. Thanks again. All right. Uh, good luck in the very busy months ahead. Likewise.